0: Good morning. If you guys would, please stand with us as we read God's word. Uh, We're going to be in Matthew 2, verses 1 through 12 this morning. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. You guys can be seated. Good morning. Good to see
1: you this morning. Um, As you can tell from the uh, transition video and from the scripture account read, we are starting our Christmas Advent series this morning uh, called the Nativity, and uh, we, uh, We're very excited about Christmas at our house. we got, if you don't know, we've got four little kids who, for the first time, made a Christmas list, so they uh, are eagerly anticipating what they might receive. Um, It's probably probably one of our family's favorite times of the year. We do all kinds of stuff. My wife is great about um, planning stuff for us to do for Christmas. Just this past week, we... uh, Put on our Christmas PJs and got some hot chocolate and then went and got in the van and rode around looking for Christmas lights, which was lots of fun. I told the first service, when you've got three little boys and uh, you tell them, okay, yell when you see Christmas lights, um, that turns into quite an interesting experience as they try to out yell each other louder and longer and quicker and... We eventually had to had them stop yelling for Christmas lights because it was a it turned into a debacle. But it's fun. We do all kinds of stuff. They helped me get boxes down from the attic this year, which was great because uh, I'm usually doing that by myself. When we decorate, uh, we have we have as as part of our decorations, we have two nativity sets. We've got one that is mommy's that does not get touched. I told first, they're the first. It's one of those willow tree ones. You ever seen that? You know, it's kind of the creepy people without faces. Um, so, but it looks nice. It looks nice. It's my wife's uh, favorite. Uh, that one doesn't get touched. It sits up on the piano. Everybody knows you do not play with that one. But then we have this other um, nativity set that's Veggie Tales. So it's all vegetables. Um, <laughs> And one of the things about the VeggieTales nativity set is that baby Jesus is not firmly attached to the manger. So I'm not really sure whether to call that one a nativity set or not because Jesus has either ascended or someone has stolen him. So now it's just a bunch of vegetables in a barn. Um, But the kids have that one and they get to play with it. But uh, why am I talking about nativity sets? Uh, Well... Really, our Advent series is, is called the Nativity, and we, we kind of get the idea of of a nativity set. And they're common; we see them. We're we're used to them. They they're they're typical, and especially uh, in our culture, but even cultures around the world, um, as ways of of commemorating and celebrating and and decorating for Christmas. And and in each nativity set, there's really you you have very common figures. There's the wise men. You have the shepherds. You have Mary and Joseph, and you have Jesus. So what we wanted to do uh, for our Advent season and for uh, our time together as a body is over the next few weeks and then on Christmas Eve, kind of take each of the the groups of figures within the nativity set um, and look at where they are in the scriptural account of the Christmas time and not just learn about them, learn they are why they 're there, but then also what are we what do we learn what are we how are we shaped as we come to them as we see their presence what is it god 's trying to teach us what is it the Lord wants to show us and how is he moving our hearts with deeper affections for Jesus and with a greater desire for him and to be the kind of people that he uh, wants us to be so what I want to do this morning is I want to pray and then I want to take the first set of figures. Uh, from the nativity set, the magi, the wise men, and go from there. So let's pray, and we'll get started. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for your word. Thank you for opportunities to gather with fellow believers. And God, I pray that as we um, take a look at these people who came, um, that, Lord, you would take our hearts and you would drive them by your word, that you would inform us with your word, that you would move us to genuine, authentic, spirit-filled worship, and that we would not simply hear, but that we would do, and that we would not simply know, but that we would be about uh, the business of worship continually. Father, we love you, and we thank you, and we ask this in Christ's name, amen. So this morning we, we will be looking at the account of the Magi and their visit to Jesus and his family at this time. Um, just going to kind of give you a big picture where we're going before we get into... The text and before we get into the passage really in in matthew 's account here with the magi and herod you 're really presented with two different um, not just people but kind of two types of of worshipers and the idea that we 're going to be going for the big overarching theme is that worship surrounds this entire narrative, and worship is the goal. We're, we're going to be getting to what genuine worship is, looking at word-driven, word-informed worship, and we're going to come to that in a minute. So here's how we're going to do this. I want to look at who are the figures in the story, why are they here, and then look at what do we learn from that. So the first question is, who are the figures in the story? And and as we're reading this, they're, they're right there in the first two verses. We'll read them again. Uh, Chris read them for us. Let's read them again. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod, behold, wise men came from from the east, came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born King of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. So these two figures that we have here are these wise men and Herod. So let's take the wise men first. The wise men, who who are these guys? Well, there's a lot of, there's a lot of speculation and myth and, and craziness and tradition and reality behind them. Um, traditionally, what has been held was that we hear three kings. You know, we sing the Christmas song. We three kings of Orient are traveling something of. Are, you know i don't really remember the words i just kind of read them as they're caroling along but traditionally they, they've kind of they are three kings who came and worshiped jesus well in the text we don't see a number and we don't see that they are kings the number really is based on what we see later in the passage when they brought gold frankincense and myrrh so the tradition held that there were three of them one bearing each gift And the reason that they're they're thought of as kings uh, really was come from a wrong interpretation of Psalm 72.10. In Psalm 72.10, it said that kings from other nations would come and worship. And the nations that are mentioned there are actually south of Israel and, and west. And they're not from the east. And we notice here that they are wise men from the east. But from those traditions, it's kind of funny because not only do we know the traditions that there were three kings who brought gifts, but, you know, traditions, they have a way of kind of steamrolling and having, gathering a life of their own because now they actually have kings. Uh, peop- uh, they have kings. They have names, uh, those names being Caspar, Balthazar, and Melchior. And, in fact, in Germany, there is a cathedral that claims to have the bones of Caspar, Balthazar, and Melchior in the cathedral. And so this, this whole idea is kind of taken and gone on. And, and re, really, those things aren't in the scriptural account. But what is in the scriptural account? Well, what's there is we find, one, that they are wise men from the east, now, the term wise men is magi, and with another term we're familiar with. Now, magi was, uh, in Jesus' day, the name of a class of people from the East, really probably the Persian Babylonian era, they were... Um, philosophers, astrologers, uh, studiers of religion. But this is not the first time we've actually seen them in the scriptures. Because if you go back to the book of Daniel, if you'll remember when Israel has been taken into exile and they're in Babylon, Daniel has been called on to interpret the dream of Nebuchadnezzar. And if you'll remember, the wise men of the area could not interpret Nebuchadnezzar's dream. And so these wise men, these enchanters, these astrologers were a class of people who were already there in Babylon and they're mentioned several times in the book of Daniel. And so now we find is that these magi, that they're still around several hundred years later, still from that area, have come and now they're going to worship Jesus. We don't know how many of them there were, we don't know if there were two, three, thirty, 300, we don't know. But what we know is that they came to worship Jesus. That's what we know. Well, what about where they met Jesus at? Because when we see a nativity set, it's usually Mary, Joseph, shepherds, and wise men. They're all there together in the stable where Jesus was born. But it doesn't seem that they actually visited Jesus in the stable where he was born. Because as we get into the passage here, we find that when Herod got them together, he said, hey, how long ago did you see this star? And I said, well, it's about two years. And then when they go and visit, they don't visit them in the stable. It actually says they visit them in the house. So more than likely, the wise men came not when Jesus was first born, but when he was possibly about two years old. So that's what we do know about the wise men. That's the first character. But the other character in the story is Herod. Herod is the king. Now, he's not the king of Davidic descent, he's not from the tribe of Judah. In fact, Herod's not even a Jew. He wanted. He kind of faked a birth certificate, if you will. He kind of claimed that he came from a Jew during the intertestimonial period, but he didn't. He was actually someone who was placed there by the Romans. The Romans let him be a governor. They let him keep the title of king, but the Romans really had charge of everything. Now Caesar, I mean Caesar, uh, Herod was a smart guy. He was also a very vicious guy. He was smart in the sense that he he um, knew how to construct things. He knew how to bring together a society and make it kind of build it up. So he built palaces. He built waterworks. He built um, fortresses. He built cities. He actually built seaports. All of this was under his control. So during this time when Herod was reigning, there was lots of construction and prosperity and things are going on well during the time. But it's not that Herod was such a great leader. He could build stuff, but Herod was also power hungry and paranoid. If you want to get a sense for the kind of guy Herod was, Herod had three of his sons put to death. He married ten different women, and his favorite wife, he actually had her put to death. He had one of his mother in laws put to death. He had the high priest drowned. And then at the very end of his life, he's such a, a, just a tyrant, he knew that nobody would mourn his death. In fact, they would celebrate the fact that he had died. He gets his sister, Salome, and says, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go and gather all this group of Jewish leaders and take them down to this area called the Hippodrome. It's kind of like a Colosseum. Gather them all in there. And when I die, I want you to kill every single one of them. Because when you do that, people will mourn. And I want there to be mourning when I die. That's the kind of guy Herod was. So you've got these two people. You've got these these wise men coming from the east. And then you've got Herod. And they're just kind of... Like, we don't know a whole lot about the wise men. But Josephus, the historian, wrote two whole books about Herod. And Herod's not the kind of guy that we want to be like. The wise men... Well, we don't know what's going on them. So then the question is, Matthew includes Herod and the wise men in this very beginning portion talking about the birth of Christ, but Luke doesn't. Luke records the shepherds seeing the angels and then going to the stable. Why is it that Matthew takes the time and the energy to give us this focus not only on the wise men, but their interaction with Herod? And I think there's something really important here for us. So as we look at the wise men, why are they in Matthew's account? Well, we've got to remember as we're studying the book of Matthew, Matthew is showing through the power of the Spirit, opening up Old Testament scriptures and showing us Jesus is the promised Messiah. And in Matthew's gospel, one of Jesus' favorite terms for himself is the Son of Man. Now, if you're reading the book of Matthew, Jesus constantly kind of in third person refers to himself as the son of man. The son of man must do this. The son of man must do this. And so there's this whole sense he's referring to himself as the son of man. And that term comes really from Daniel chapter 7. Daniel seven thirteen and 14 says this. This is Daniel writing. I saw in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. Jesus is this Son of Man. And notice in there, one of the prophecies is that all peoples, nations, and languages should sh- serve him. Even in the very beginning, what Matthew is doing is he's opening our eyes to see this is the Son of Man. This is the Messiah. This is the one who has come. And even at his birth, even in the very beginning, there are people coming to worship him from all over the world. But I think there's something even deeper about these Magi. Remember that if you read in the book of Daniel, these magi were around Daniel constantly. They saw him interpret dreams. They saw what was going on. There's constant interaction with them. And then Daniel is there. He's, he's praying. Shadrach and, Meshach, Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego are praying. They don't like them. There's this constant going back and forth. But the, the Jewish people are there. The words are there. Daniel has seen his vision. All of this has been written down. And notice that when they come, they don't just say, "Hey, we got a telegram that uh, something important's going on here." Can you kind of, uh, is something cool happening? You got a party going on? You got something that's something that's, that's that's happening in this place? Notice what they say. Go back to verse two right here. This is what they said: "Where is he who has been born King of the Jews?" For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. Notice here there's some very specifics. These guys know one, a king has been born, and the reason they know that is because his star rose. And so we followed that star because we've come to worship him. Not serve him, not uh, bring him gifts. In the name of our king. Notice what they said. There's a king who's been born. There's supernatural revelation that he's here. This star, because we're astrologers and we know that there's something special about this star. And this king is not just any king. He is worthy of worship. So my question is, how do these guys know that there was a king who was coming, who was going to be born, that a star was going to go up, and he would be worthy of worship and they should come and do that? And I think that the reason why is the exposure of the Old Testament Scriptures was there, they were carried on, and these guys saw those things. For instance, a couple passages to share with you. First off, that a king was coming. Daniel chapter 9, verses 24 through 25. Seventy weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city, that is Jerusalem to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, and atone for iniquity, to bring everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and prophet, to anoint a most holy place. Now here we go. Know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks. For then 62 weeks it shall be built again. Numbers twenty-four seventeen says that a star would announce the coming one's birth. I see him, this is a prophet who's, who's, who's talking about Christ. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. It shall crush the head, forehead of Moab and break down all the sons of Sheath. And then also in Isaiah, it is said that people from other nations would worship him and bring him gifts. Isaiah 60, verses 3 through 6. And nations shall come to your light and kings to the brightness of your rising. Lift up your eyes all around and see. They all gather together. They come to you. Your sons shall come from afar. Your daughters shall be carried on the hip. Then you shall see and be radiant. Your heart shall thrill and exult because of the abundance of the seas shall be turned to you. The wealth of the nations shall come to you. A multitude of camels shall cover over you the young camels of Midian and Ephah all those from Sheba shall come they shall bring gold and frankincense and shall bring good news the praises of the Lord Now these are just a few of the passages that we could point out from the Old Testament that predict a king is coming he will be born they're very specifics and I believe that these wise men didn't just kind of on a whim one day, jump on some camels and head over to Jerusalem for the party. I believe that God, by the power of the Spirit, was taking his word and opening our eyes that they might see and come and worship this new king. But what about Herod? Herod was a guy, like I said, wasn't Jewish. And when it came time and they came up and they asked, we're here to worship the king. Now Herod, I've already told you, is paranoid. This guy's thinking, oh my goodness. I've heard these people talk about this Messiah, this deliverer guy who's supposed to come. Now these these guys from Babylon rode their camels over here and now they want to come worship him. Oh my goodness. This guy's going to try to take over. We've got to put an end to this. What do we do? And so he's wondering, where would this guy be born? But Herod doesn't know. He doesn't know the scriptures. So what does he do? Well, if you look, verse 3, when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all of Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and the scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. He didn't know. He said, hey, hey guys, y'all know the Bible. Where, where is this Messiah supposed to be born? And they told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. You see, now Herod is wanting to know about Jesus, but he's got to go to the word to find out about Jesus. These other guys have been in the word. They know Jesus is coming. And so now they're coming to worship him. Herod's like, I don't know. Where do I go? Let me talk to the religious people. And they go to the word and they find out where it is. So now what you've got is you've got these two different people who are now in Matthew, showing who they are. People who have read the word, who are coming to worship. And Herod, who doesn't know, but who later says, yeah, I want to worship. I want to worship him. You guys go find him. Come back and tell me where he is. But Herod has no desire to worship Jesus whatsoever. Why is Herod in the story? I mean, because it could have just been that you've got these guys who read the word, followed it, and came to worship Jesus. You, Matthew could have just said there were wise men who came from the east, followed the star, and then they went and found the child, and they worshiped him. Why do you put Herod in the mix? And I think one of the reasons why is because of the prophecy that was given in Genesis chapter 49. And in Genesis 49... Um, Jacob is blessing each of his sons. And when he gets to Judah, there's very specific verses about Judah that are just massive and beautiful foretelling of Christ. And in Genesis 49, 10, right in the middle of it, this is what's said. The the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until, so Judah would be the king, until something happens, until tribute comes to him and to him shall be the obedience of the people. Now you see when you read all of this Genesis 49 account there there's talking about one who is coming and then Judah's going to have a line of kings but at some point in time the scepter is going to be removed. The ruling staff is going to be taken away because the one to whom tribute is due has come. And remember what I said about Herod. Herod's not Jewish. Herod's not from the tribe of Judah. Though he is a figurehead king, he is not the king. He is not in the line of David. He is not one through whom the promise could be kept. But the scepter's been taken away from him. Because now, the one, the king, the one they had waited on, has come. And tribute is due to him. Why include Herod? Remember what Matthew's doing. Matthew, by the power of the Spirit, he is so immersed in the Scriptures. He sees, he's walked with Jesus. He knows he's the Messiah. He just sees all of these things coming together. Why include Herod? Just as a reminder, Herod wasn't in the line of Judah. Jesus, the King, the long-awaited one, is here. And the nations are coming and paying tribute to him. But what does Herod do? Yeah, I want to worship him while in the back he's scheming. As soon as I find this little kid, I'm going to kill him because he's a threat to me. He is not the one we're to be looking at. Jesus is. So what do we learn from this? Okay, so we've got these stories and these neat connections with the Old Testament. But but what do we learn from this? What is it really all about? Why is it that we would look at this and, and really see the worship aspect pulled out with both of them. And I think, I think the sentence that I would boil it down to is this. Authentic worship is driven and informed by the Word of God. Real, genuine, authentic worship is driven and informed by the Word of God. You see, it's in the Word of God that we understand Deeper the majesty of God. It is in the word of God that we hear the gospel. It is in the word of God that we learn of the faithfulness of God. It is in the word of God that we learn how to worship him rightly. It is in the word of God that we see Jesus. It is in the word of God that we see warnings against sin. It is in the word of God that we see prophecy fulfilled. It is in the word of God where he gives us his promises. It is in the word of God where God condescends, comes down to us and speaks on our level so that we might. Might know Him. The Word of God is central in our lives, and as it so gets into us, and as it gets in our hearts, and just works deeply in, it drives us to worship. We learn, but not for knowledge's sake. We learn, and our response to God in this is worship. And so, the Word doesn't just have an effect of their their words on a page. Like I can. I can read sports articles, and they don't change my life. For some people, unfortunately, they do. But I can read sports articles, I can read magazines, I can read blogs, I can read all these things, and they can be good. But the Word of God is supernatural in the way that it comes in and causes a response in our life. The one, reason we, one of the reasons we structure our service in the way that we do if you're new to Remedy or if you've been coming here for a while, one of the first things I noticed was something different in the structure of the worship service on Sunday mornings. You see, because w- when I grew up, we would, we would come and we would go to church and we would sing a whole bunch of songs and do a lot of things. And then really the last thing we would do is there would be the sermon and then we'd dismiss and go. Um, and I'm not saying that that's necessarily wrong, but... The way that we structure our service is intentional because we believe that the Word of God drives and informs our worship. So then, our singing and our giving and our praying and our going has been affected by the Word. We begin with the Word and then move into different aspects of worship. Because we are convinced that it's the Word of God that so shapes and so moves our worship in a way that glorifies Jesus and pushes us close to God. You see, the wise men had the Word and it moved them. One of the uh, beautiful quotes Matthew Henry wrote, Those who truly desire to know Christ and find Him will not regard pains or perils in seeking after Him. They were so moved by the word of God that it didn't matter they had to go so far. It didn't matter they didn't know where they were going. They just knew he's the king of Israel. We're going to Jerusalem. That's where the palace is. Surely that's where the king will be. And they get there. He's not there. But they don't give up. They don't turn around and go home. They continue diligently pursuing and seeking after him. Um, I'm reading right now a, uh, an ebook by John Piper. It's a book for Advent, and um, if I highly recommend it to you. It's really, every day's reading is probably about three or four paragraphs. It's real brief, but it takes a scripture passage and just kind of comments on it to get our hearts ready for Advent. It started last Sunday. Um, if, you, if you don't have it, um, I would recommend desiringgod.org. Go and download it. It's, it'd be well worth it. Um, one of the things he, he said that was just amazing, um, he said this, So today, these two kinds of opposition will come against Christ and his worshipers. Indifference and hostility. Are you in one of those groups? Let this Christmas be the time when you reconsider the Messiah and ponder what it is to worship him. Because you see, when Herod was confronted with the fact that the Messiah was here, this wasn't just a king, it wasn't just somebody who was possibly going to take over his throne. He knew that this was a prophesied Messiah. That's why he went to the chief priests, that's why he went to the elders. He didn't go to the army. He didn't go to the generals. He didn't go to the other sub-governors or whoever else was there and say, where might a religious, where might a, um, a um, political figure be born? He went to the chief priests. He went to the elders. He knew that this was the one that was prophesied by God. And when he saw that, he didn't say, oh, my heart is broken. God is coming to visit us. He said, how can I kill him? How can I stand against him? Now, most of us, when we come to worship, we don't come with hostility. That's just just not what we tend to do. We don't tend to come openly against God. And there may be some who do, but for us as a church, we don't really go that route. But can I tell you this? There's a danger of really being indifferent about worship. It's a real danger. And even as I was reading this morning, I felt God just press on my heart that that danger has been true in my life. Even this past week, I've just let so many other things become more important and just become indifferent to the word of God and indifferent to my time with him. So much that it has an effect on my life. And that is the danger that I think we face more than anything. And you actually see people we haven't talked about a lot. Piper brought this out and I thought it was interesting. The chief priests and the elders. These guys have come from a far country looking for the Messiah. Saying that he's going to be born. Why didn't they tag along? They're the religious people. Why didn't they go along? Because they were indifferent to it. And that's the danger that we face. We know that we should be word-driven, we know that we should be word-saturated, but the danger is that we would not do that, but we would simply come and indi- be indifferent. Well, What does that look like? Well, I think that, uh, I think there's a couple ways that, that our indifference is seen, uh, especially in our, kind of our part of the world. Um. I, think, I feel like God's just really just kind of shown me, man, there's just a lot of things where we are that we can just kind of go through the motions. And this is not strictly the Southeast, but really I think it could be prevalence. So I think we have to be aware of this. Um, three possibilities of just showing indifference in worship. Um, one, and I just kind of gave these names because I thought it would be funny to do so. Um, one is the dirty worshiper. And by the dirty worshiper I mean is this. This is that person who feels guilty because they just know they're not doing the stuff they're supposed to be doing, or they're not living the way they're supposed to be doing, or their business deals aren't going the way that they know uh, they should be doing. So they just kind of feel bad. They just kind of just generally just kind of feel guilty about their life. And so what they do is they'll come on Sunday morning because it just helps them not feel as bad. Okay, well, I've done all that other stuff in this week, but hey, I went to church. So, you know, if you kind of put those in the columns together, they kind of cancel each other out. And so as long as I can come on Sunday mornings, it kind of cancels out all the other stuff that I do. So it's like, okay, I, I go to church and I have this, and so the, like there's this, there's this dirtiness of like, okay, I'm kind of guilty, but I'll go to church. And if I go to church, it'll offset everything and then I'm good. And then I go back and do the other stuff. Okay, well, I'll go to church and then I'm okay because church is the way I cancel out all the other stuff. But that's not what the gospel calls us to do. Then there's the social worshiper. And unlike the guilty worshiper who comes so that, hey, I want to come so that I can be, you know, kind of massage my conscience. The social worshiper comes simply because I just want to, I just like hanging out with people. I like people there accept me or people there love me. So I'm just going to go because of that. And that's the end of it. That's just that's where my friends are. That's what we're going to do. And the last one I want to say is this, the obligated worshiper. And this really kind of reveals itself in one of two ways. They either come to church on Sunday mornings because that's just what you do. You know, I shared with the first service, for a while, Chick-fil-A had a family night where for every adult combo you bought, you got a free kid's meal. So I just said free Chick-fil-A, okay? I think it was, it was on Thursday nights. And so every Thursday night, we went to Chick-fil-A. Why? Because that's what you do when they give away free Chick-fil-A. That's what you do it was they were giving it away we went that was it that's all and so because that's wh- because that's what they that, that's just what you do and so that's kind of the way we lived and went through those days why do you go to Chick-fil-A because they're giving away that's just what you do and some people kind of approach church the same way that's just what you do it's sunday morning you just go to church there's no i mean there's no there's no forethought there's no afterthought it's just church it's sunday morning that's what you do or on the flip side of it it can also be the whole you know I go so that my, my girlfriend will quit nagging me or my boyfriend will stop asking me or my mom will get off my back or my husband will stop pushing me or whatever and we just go because like somebody's pushing us to go and it's like okay I'll just I'll just go. I'm obligated to you. You do nice things for me, so I'll go to church for you. Here's what I want to say. All three of those, the idea of feeling guilty, or the idea of having people around you that you I enjoy being around or going out, even out of a sense of duty. Those things, in and of themselves, if they are the end, are wrong. But know this that as the word moves us to Jesus both corporately and personally what we find is that the word pushes us together and we are under the teaching of the gospel and we're under the truth of the gospel and yes we feel the sense and the weight of of sin being lifted off of us and the forgiveness of Christ because we are focused on him The goal is not let me go so I can just get rid of this. Like we're going to the gym so we can shed a few pounds. We're going to be with Jesus. And as we are in his presence, we are reminded of the gospel and we reminded the truth of forgiveness. And yes, we feel it just wash over us but we go because Jesus is there. And as we gather with the body of believers, there is a fellowship and a kinship and a connection that is eternal and not just a friendship. So as we gather to worship Jesus together, there are those relationships and yes, there is a sense of Christ has done this for me so what can I do for him? And he's commanded that we don't give up gathering together and so we will not do it. There is a sense of obligation, but all of those are wrapped up and tied up in Christ. And we are pursuing Him through His Word, and His Word is pushing us to Him. And as we're being pushed to Him, we say, what is the outpouring of that? And don't make the outpouring the end goal. You see, worship, the Word drives us to Jesus. Therefore, the Word pushes us to genuine, authentic worship so what does that mean well there's a couple things in conclusion i'd like to say first off word-driven worship is both corporate and personal it's not either or so some people will say i go to church on sunday morning there's preaching i bring my bible i read it i'm good until next week Unfortunately, uh, for that kind of reveals a mindset that worship is expressed solely through singing. Worship is a response to God. So how are you going to respond to Jesus? How are you going to respond to the truth of his word every single day? You see, we need more than just come on Sunday morning, get a fill up, and then we'll be empty by the end of the week and get refilled so that we can go back on the next week. See, that's kind of what some people think, but the reality is, I don't know about you, but I know about me. I can get filled up on Sunday morning and let the afternoon get rough, and I'm empty after lunch, especially if all four kids are just crazy. That's a tendency to empty me out. I need the Word of God pushing me towards Jesus. But on the other end of the spectrum is some people will say, you know, I've got the Word. I've got it. I can read it on my own. I don't have to go to church. You know, I can can have a passage of Scripture and I can be out on the lake fishing and I can say that passage of Scripture and then I'm close to Jesus and I don't have to go to church. And so it's kind of an either-or thing. Now, most of the people in this room probably don't fall into this last category because you're here. But what I would tell you is the Word drives us as a body corporately, but then the Word drives us individually. And we need both. We were designed to be part of a body, to be pushed towards Jesus by the Word together, and we were designed personally to have that personal relationship with Christ. And they both must be in there together. Secondly is this. Word-driven worship doesn't just take place on Sunday mornings. So what I want to know is, how are you, especially this time of year, let's get very specific with Christmas. How is the Word driving your thinking, celebrating, traditions, everything revolved around Christmas? How is it pushing your preparations? How is it pushing the things that you do as a family? Whether your kids have all, are all out of the house, whether you're not married, whether you're young, how is it that the Word is pushing the way that you think about Christmas? And this was something that in our family we just kind of wrestled with and uh, my wife put together this, this amazing thing that we do with our kids. It's called a Jesse tree. And so one of the ways that we do this is every night we sit down as a family right after dinner and we read a, a small devotion together. And we've got it all printed up. And what we do is, it's, it's called a Jesse tree because it's based off a passage in Isaiah that says that from the stump of Jesse, a root, a sprout will come up, a tree will come. And it's a prophecy of Jesus. So we start there and then what we do is we go back to Genesis and we just kind of trace the prophecies of Jesus all the way through to Christmas Eve when we get to the manger. And then each night, the kids make an ornament that kind of represents that. And we've got young kids. We've got small kids. But what we said was, we've got to be intentional to keep the Word focusing us on Christmas. We don't want to just decry how commercial Christmas has come, and we don't want to just tritely say, keep Christ in Christmas, and then go about our way like everybody else. We've got to let the Word come in and drive us. So my question is, dads, how are you pushing your family towards the word this Christmas season? Or if you're single, how are you so immersing yourselves in the words of Scripture that you're keeping that first and foremost? Or if you're young and you're a child, are you thinking about Jesus as the gift that God gave to us? Or is all your time spent thinking about the gifts that you hope will be under the tree on Christmas morning? Let the word of God push you, drive you into worship of Jesus. Thirdly is this, word-driven worship doesn't mean you know everything. Here's why I bring this out. It hit me because I was, I was kind of making this case for the wise men, you know, having studied the scriptures, knowing all this stuff, and I believe that's true. But you know, they didn't know where the Messiah was going to be born. I think They knew all this other stuff, but they didn't know that he was going to be born in Bethlehem. The chief priests and the scribes did so they told them, and they believed it because they pulled it out of the word here 's what I think happens sometimes. we feel like i don 't know enough of the Word to really push me into into uh worship i don 't know all the prophecies of Jesus in the Old Testament, so I really can 't go there i can't i don 't really know so this whole thing about the word I hear you, I got it, but I just don 't know enough so I'm not really going to worry about it. Or, I, I'm, I, don't, I don't know a whole lot of the Bible, and so now, what am I going to do with my family? How am I as a dad going to push them forward? Or, you know what? Reading the Bible by myself is so lonely, I just, I don't understand it. And we use that as a reason to not push forward. We, we can't let that be the reason. I, I read this morning, First um, Peter chapter 2, verse 2. Peter writes this. He says, Like newborn infants long for, pure, for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up to salvation. He, he is commanding us to long for the Word, to desire the Word, to want it, like a baby wants milk. I remember my kids were babies. It was like all they did was eat and sleep. That was it. But when they were hungry, they let you know, and they would not give up until you fed them. And we are commanded to long for that. So how are you longing for that? You know, right around the turn of the year is New Year's. And we're all, some of us are going to make resolutions, and we might actually keep some of them. But they actually come right about the time. What if right now you begin asking right now as a desire for Advent and a desire for Christmas and as a desire to be the kind of person that God wants you to be? What if even now you begin thinking, God, would you give me a deeper desire for Your Word and then actually took steps and said, Okay, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to I'm going to read the Bible in a year. I'm going to read the New Testament in a year. I'm just going to pick one book at a time of the Bible and just slowly work through it. I'm going to I'm going to memorize. Five verses next year. I'm going to do whatever. And you take that plan. You take that step because you said, it's the word that's going to drive me deeper into Jesus. It's going to inform me of the glories of the gospel. I want it. So God, give me a desire and then make a plan and get ready for it. And the last thing is this. Remember again that word-driven worship isn't just singing. Now, singing is, is, is an amazing and beautiful way that God has ordained that we worship Him. We are commanded to break forth in song all throughout Scripture. So don't hear me say that worship singing isn't worship. It is. It's a powerful way. And for some of us, it is a major outlet that we have for worship. But let us not reduce worship to simply singing. Remember that as a congregation, when we give, we are worshiping because we're declaring, God, you're more valuable to us than stuff. When we serve, we are worshiping. When we share the gospel, we are worshiping. When we encourage each other, we're worshiping because we hear God's commands, we love Him, and we keep His commands. We are obedient. We push into those things which Christ wants for us, which show us deeper Christ at a response to Him because He's more wonderful and amazing than anything we've got. It is a response of worship. So start thinking, how can I worship in this? How can I reflect the fact that Jesus is more wonderful to me than anything in the world and show that in this? And one of the ways that we worship as, as a group of people called, set apart by Christ is through the Lord's Supper. We're going to begin our Advent season uh, by partaking of the Lord's Supper together. So um, Ben and the band are going to lead us in a song, a song of, of response to what we've heard And then we'll gather together around the Lord's table and focus on it. So let me pray for us. Father, you are wonderful and amazing and so good to us. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for examples of people in the scripture who knew it and by your Spirit understood it and moved forward. So would you create in us hearts to not only know your word, but to respond to it. And Lord, would you take us and make us genuine worshipers, informed and driven by your word. And God, we pray that this time of year, as we look forward to Christmas, that we would be the kind of people so enamored with you, so saturated in your word that our lives reflect you. So God, we love you and we ask this in Christ's name.